As we come to prayer this morning, we come from a world that is torn, in strife, and we ourselves are so aware of our needs. But we come with the invitation that the Apostle Paul gave us to not be anxious for anything but in everything, by prayer and petition, together with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known to God. And in his letter to the Romans, he assured us that although we do not know how to pray, as we ought. The Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, and God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So our prayer is sustained by the Spirit of God. I'm going to be using the words of a Baptist preacher from Australia, Terry Falla, in leading us in our common prayers, but I'm going to invite you as well to spend some time in silence in your prayers. First of all, will you give some time to considering who God is, and then how you are in God's presence right now as you come to pray. God, our creator and Lord of all our being, We do not rely on our own good deeds, but on your great mercy as we lay our needs before you. For what are we? What is our life? What is our love? What is our justice? What is our success? What is our endurance? What is our power? Lord, hear. Lord, pardon. Lord, listen and act. Lord, be for us the truth on which life and death are built, the hope that cannot be destroyed, the freedom from which love and justice flow, and the joy that has eternity within it. Now I ask you to give thought and direct your prayers to our church and our needs. Eternal God, 
We praise you for every sign of your presence within our world. Today, we especially thank you for our church community, that to us it is a sign of your presence. We thank you for those who had the vision to establish it, for those who had the audacity to believe you could use it. We acknowledge that at no time has the task been an easy one, and while we seek to serve you, never will be. For this reason, we praise you for every person whose perseverance has brought us to this day, for every person who has given mind, skill, and money, for every person who has devoted energy, time, and imagination. Most of all, our God, we thank you that in spite of our failures, disappointments, and loss, you have been among us, disturbed us with your presence, and encountered us with your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the present in which we live and work, that in it we experience your forgiveness, mercy, and love, that from it we can look back, reflect, and with a deeper understanding of ourselves and you, be better prepared for the road before us, and that for Sharing its pain and pleasure, its sorrow and joy, you have given us each other. We thank you, our God, for those persons in our church with whom we share a special relationship, for those who are an example and inspiration to us, for those who encourage us and give new strength for the journey, for those who show us patience and understanding for those who accept us as we are and love us without demand. For such persons, Lord, we are more grateful than we can tell. We praise you also, our God, for the future which you are opening out before us and where you surprise us with the unexpected. We thank you that it belongs to you, so that come what may, we are met by your grace and can journey in hope. That we are not asked to take an untraveled way or choose our direction blindfold. You have set the crucified Christ before us as risen Lord and promised that we can share his life. Most gracious God, we praise you that you have given us a beginning and will be with us at the end, that in the strength of your love, we can follow you to the edge of time and the threshold of eternity. And now let us intercede for the needs of those we know, 
some of which are listed in your bulletin. And we think of the Hanna family in um, the Middle East with a new baby. And then for the world beyond, let us intercede for the world. Eternal and ever-loving God, we believe that our worship draws us to you and toward our neighbors on earth. We pray for the whole creation. May we all learn before it is too late to respect the uniqueness, fragility, and beauty of our earth and all its creatures. We pray for every nation and race. May our actions and lifestyle bear out our belief that all people everywhere are created in your image. Whatever their country, their city, or their tribe, whatever their education or their culture, whatever their circumstances, religion, or color. We pray for peace in our torn and troubled world. We pray that weapons may be discarded instead of people, guns silenced instead of the voices of the poor, and that in a world half-expecting an overwhelming holocaust, we might learn that love is not a luxury. We pray for the Church of Jesus Christ. May it be true and joyful, wholesome and active, always rediscovering that you called it into being for the service and salvation of others. And as we grow in faith, love, and hope, help us to understand that no planning for the future, however necessary, no program, however carefully conceived, can relieve us of the necessity of going forward into a future that cannot be planned, of risk, of danger, of hope, in your incalculable grace. And now we pray for ourselves. Not one of us has ever found or given enough tenderness or love in our lives, enough truth, freedom, beauty, goodness, and joy. We are always traveling to a new tomorrow. Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for others. We pray for ourselves. We pray because you have put within us an unquenchable hope. We pray because Jesus is our Lord and your kingdom is in our midst. And we pray in his name. Amen. This morning, our Old Testament reading is taken from 2 Kings, 
verses 9 through 14. You will find this on page 333 in your Old Testament section of the Bible in the pew. In this reading, Elijah, God's prophet, is approaching his final days. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and then to the other, and Elisha went over. The reading from the New Testament today is in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. It's the commissioning of Barnabas and Saul. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and sent them off. Good morning. You look wonderful. It's probably vain of me, but I actually read the billboard out in front. Most of you know that I am committed to women in ministry, and the equality of men and women. And the billboard out there says, Facing He Crises of Change. (laughs) I want you to know that there are also She Crises of Change. Let's be fair. (laughs) It is really an awesome task to stand here. We've been on vacation, and when we got back late Wednesday evening, we used the limousine from LAX to come to our home in Pasadena. I like to talk with limo drivers, and 
I sat in the front seat with him, and we covered the weather, food, baseball, a little politics, and soon it was time to talk about religion, which I hope you all try to do. And about that time, we were coming up Marengo by the church. And I discovered that our limo driver was an American Baptist. He goes to an American Baptist church in the valley. And I said, well, this church here is where we're members, First Baptist of Pasadena. And he said, well, I've heard of Hasper. And I said, in fact, I'm going to preach there on Sunday. And he said, oh, oh, what an opportunity and obligation. And I was reminded of the humility I should have. It makes me think of our older daughter when she was about 15 years old and I was packing to go off and give some lectures somewhere. And she said to me, Dad, do those people really want to listen to you? (laughs) And then I have the grace this morning of a professor of preaching from Fuller Seminary showing up. I mean, one is never free from one's critics. (laughs) But... It is good to have you here. The situation that we face is in some ways a crisis or a series of crises. It's certainly a time of transition. Now, in my own analysis, which maybe not everyone would share, the time between Dr. Lane and the arrival of Dr. Hasper was about a decade of what I would call the church in transition. It hadn't really found its legs again. And so we've been through as a congregation a prolonged period of finding ourselves. And then the staff changes that have descended upon us, some by tragedy, others by personal choice. And I only learned this morning, actually, I wanted Marianne to read the scripture lesson from Acts this morning because she was going to be leaving us. And I learned this morning that she's actually going to stay with us one more year. So she volunteered not to read scripture. And I said, oh no, we still want you to read the scripture. And then we faced, in a period of four or five weeks, four deaths in our congregation. Three of them, people who were currently very active. People who were greatly loved. People that represented so much 
of the joy and dedication of our congregation. If my eyes do not deceive me, at least two of those three widows are with us this morning. I still am deeply moved by this tragedy. And we are a relatively small congregation. Look at us. We've got this huge building. It actually costs money to keep it up. It's a beautiful place. There was a day when it was full. Like many urban churches, we've shrunk in size. But think of what we have. We have a gorgeous, wonderful facility. We're right in the center of Pasadena. The opportunities that lie before us are incredible. But we are in a time of transition. We're facing the breakup of the Pacific Southwest region of our denomination. We're facing challenges of what we should do next in the life of our church. Overall, we're clearly in a time of transition. We're in a time of change, a time of crisis. When I think on things like this, I like to pick a scripture that I have been working with recently. Some of you know that until just a few weeks ago, I was teaching the book of Acts at Bel Air Presbyterian Church in a 13-week series. And so I was deeply immersed with Acts. And when Pastor Steve asked me to preach today, I immediately decided I had to preach on a text from Acts. And so I chose the text in Acts 13, where the church in Antioch, that was in Syria. Most of you now know where Syria is, if you didn't know before. The church of Antioch in Syria was now the alternate center of the church from Jerusalem, which was located in the province, Roman province of Judea. And the church of Antioch became the place of the greatest macro change in the history of the early church. What is it that led the church of Antioch to be able to face a crisis and a time of transition. Now, it's very difficult to preach from Acts because Acts is a narrative history. And you know that in chapter 28, I'm sure you all remember, Paul handles a poisonous snake, but he doesn't die. And some people have used that in the history of the church to argue that we should be snake handlers. And in Acts 19, people brought handkerchiefs and aprons to Paul so that he would bless them. And then these would heal people. And as you know, throughout the history of the church, there are people 
who have promoted strongly healing handkerchiefs. I once made a casual reference to this in class, and the next day in class, a student presented me with a $50 silk Oral Roberts healing handkerchief, which he thought I had belittled. It's very difficult to determine what in Acts is really an instruction for the church and what in Acts is just part of the story. At Bel Air, the class I taught is called the Open Word, and their class text comes from Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's a wonderful class verse. But I used to taunt them because one sentence later, Acts says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions. I said, why didn't you pick that as your class verse? What justifies picking verse 42 but not verse 44? Well, those are some of the interpretive struggles that the church has with the book of Acts. And it is my hope that today I can focus appropriately on Acts because the greatest point of the book of Acts is the transition that occurred in the church of Antioch. That's what Acts is really mostly about. And we'll discover what that is. Now, I think there are three lessons we learn from this text. The first, and I think you have a little outline, not very profound, but the first is the lessons of patience. The second will be the lesson of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the third, the lesson of passion for a task. So first, the lesson of patience. Very few crises are best faced out of the des- are best faced not out of desperation, not out of the immediacy of the moment, but out of long-term investment. That is then the capital or the reservoir on which one can draw to face a crisis. Now the church in Antioch, we will see, represents this patience. It does remind me of a, a wonderful story. I think it's a wonderful story. You remember long ago when many Americans were taken captive in Iran. And we made an abortive attempt to rescue them. This was, what, about 1980? Or so. And then they were finally released upon the election of a new president. And they came home. You may or may not recall that one of their first stops in the United States was to go to West Point, to the military academy, where they were all processed and started the work of rehabilitation. 
And when they got there, there was a special worship service. And the preacher at that service was one of our dear friends that we had gone to college and seminary with, that we had worked with at Gordon-Conwell. His name was Richard Camp, and he was the Protestant chaplain at West Point. And he preached the sermon to this group that had just come back from Iran. It was a marvelous, powerful sermon. And, of course, the room was filled with all the reporters. And when the service was over, the reporters descended on Dick Camp and said, That sermon was simply incredible. How long did you spend preparing it? And he said, Thirty-five years. It's that kind of patience that kind of investment that prepares one to face a crisis. Elisha was tutored by Elijah before he became the one who would wear Elijah's mantle. The church in Antioch became the place where the church made the absolute commitment to take the gospel to Gentiles as well as Jews. This was the macro shift. As early as A.D. 44, Barnabas, who had been sent from Jerusalem to make sure the Antioch church wouldn't stray, Barnabas recruited Saul who had gone home to Tarsus after his Damascus Road experience. Barnabas recruited Saul to come and be a teacher in the church of Antioch. And Paul was a teacher there for at least three years before the event of Acts 13. It was about A.D. 47 or A.D. 48 after Paul was well established in the church, Barnabas was still the leader, that the church was moved to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the macro change of the Gentile mission. Now, there had been precursors of this mission in the work of Stephen and Philip and Peter going to Cornelius and so on. But it was really at this moment in the history of the church in Antioch that the church made this commitment under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Facing crises is not ever a matter of a quick fix. It takes patience. It takes time. Our church has been patient. We have some wonderful, patient leaders sitting in the congregation today who are bulwarks, sort of like Barnabas's and Saul's, who have helped us stay together. 
have prepared us to face crises over a long period of time. And the patience we have invested among those who are here today, with Pastor Steve, who is absent today, these are excellent anchors for coping with our losses and envisioning our future as a living and powerful witness for the gospel. We sang this morning, The Church's One Foundation, written by Samuel Stone, which is indeed our Lord Jesus Christ and his new creation of the church. That's where patience has brought us. The second lesson we need to learn is the lesson of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. The history of the church should teach us that there is a deep and significant connection between faithful prayer and the working power of the Holy Spirit. It has always been that way. And we neglect that at our peril. I don't know if any of you would recognize the name of A.W. Tozer. He was a very famous spiritual leader and preacher. Probably the height of his fame was in the 1940s, 50s, maybe into the 1960s. A marvelous man of God in Chicago. And A.W. Tozer allegedly once said, the Holy Spirit could leave the church and no one would notice for at least 75 years. We have too often lost touch with the Holy Spirit because we have lost touch with dependence upon the Spirit's power through prayer. What is especially important in the Antioch church was corporate prayer, praying together as a church. I'm convinced that we need to spend more time, not less, in our Sunday worship services praying. It's wonderful to sing, and it's good to have the preaching, but I think we have too often undercut the importance of corporate prayer. I did have a little lesson in prayer on our vacation that I'd like to share with you. We were with our older daughter and husband and their three little children, aged four, three, and two, in Illinois. And our four-year-old grandson, whose name is Antonio, um, is quite a ball of fire. And at lunch one day, I prayed, and I ended my prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. And Antonio said, No, Grandpa, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. (laughs) Now you may detect that our grandson doesn't go to a Baptist church. Uh, Our daughter and family are Roman Catholics. But he's certainly listening at church. Four years old. And he set his grandpa straight. 
We need to pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We need this corporate prayer. Every reformation in the history of the church, every great transition has been undergirded by prayer, corporate prayer. Prayer is the gateway to the power of the Spirit. As most of you know, this is the 100th anniversary this year of the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. Probably not the worship style that most of us would be comfortable with. But you realize that for over three years, and the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles, people came every single day from early morning till late at night to pray for over three years. And the Azusa Street Revival changed the whole world. It was the locus of the global Pentecostal movement. Now, there may have been flaws in some of the theology of Azusa Street, but the one thing we should admire is their absolute devotion to prayer. I think most of us, probably myself included, are a little uncomfortable. We're afraid. If we pray too much and indicate too much support on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit might do something that we would feel uncomfortable with. And that's scary. And yet, that's our task. There's a hymn by Ken Miedema. I'm sure some of you know of Ken, whom I think is simply a magnificent hymn writer. If I can be so personal, I once gave a series of lectures in St. Louis, Missouri, at a pastor's convention. And I gave, I think, three lectures, three mornings in a row, Bible studies for about a thousand pastors. And at the end of each of my lectures, Ken Miedema immediately sat down and on the spot composed a song to summarize my lecture, which he hadn't heard until that moment. He is simply a phenomenal musician and songwriter. But he's written a song called, Lord, Listen to Your Children Praying. Lord, listen to your children praying. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us love. Send us power. Send us grace. And then we listen this morning as we sang Daniel Iverson's Spirit of the Living God. Fall afresh on me, let's say us, Fall afresh on us, melt us, mold us, fill us, use us. The second lesson that we learn from the church in Antioch is the lesson of prayer and dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. The third lesson 
is the lesson of a passion for a task. I think, I'll risk this statement, everybody should have a passion. I know there are all kinds of passions. But I'm talking here about the most uplifting kind of passions. Something to which you can feel genuinely dedicated. Something that energizes you. Something that makes you enjoy and want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That gives you a passion. We have two visitors in our congregation this morning who are Presbyterians and they have a a marvelous passion for their lives, their young people. And they're devoted to changing the world. And if anybody can, the Holy Spirit through them can. We need passion. The church in Antioch caught the vision that it was time for the church to embrace the Gentile mission. You realize how dramatic this was for Jews. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. All of Jesus' followers were Jews. All of the twelve apostles were Jews. Barnabas is a Jew. Saul is a Jew. They all knew good and well that Jerusalem was the center of the world and that Gentiles could relate to God only on Jewish terms. And what happened in Antioch was to embrace a vision that said, in fact, God wants to embrace the Gentiles on other terms. And so Barnabas and Saul, prefigured, as I said, by Stephen, Philip, and Peter, all believed that the Holy Spirit would actually embrace Gentiles even though they were not circumcised, even though they didn't regard the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the macro shift of Antioch. And it changed the history of the church. And they had a passion for this. And as you read the book of Acts, every time Barnabas and Saul go out, and they very quickly became Paul and Barnabas, and then Paul and others, and Paul becomes the hero of the book of Acts. Every time he goes on one of his dangerous mission journeys, he reports back to the church in Antioch. That's the church to whom he owes allegiance. That's the church that commissioned him with the power of the Holy Spirit to undertake his mission, 
that became Paul's passion for his life. And that's what Paul gave himself to with every inch of his being. No matter what the consequences, that was Paul's mission. I'm not a prophet, thank God, probably. I don't know what the macro shifts of our time will be. That's not for me to say. Although I'm tempted to make a few guesses. I'll make one. The church genuinely needs a macro shift to be global. North America is no longer the temple of God. Although we have often thought it was. What lies before us? We're going to find out only if we're open, informed, courageous, and daring. There's a needy world out there in Pasadena, in Southern California, in our nation, and in our world. I can hardly think of a congregation that has the resources of First Baptist Church in Pasadena. I look out on all of you and see people who have traveled the world, who have served in other countries, who are very knowledgeable of the global situation, and we even have our own Hana Masad pastoring a Baptist church in Gaza. Think of it. We already have the infrastructure to be a church that serves the world as well as Pasadena. We have such marvelous opportunities. What we need is a new passion for this task, something that consumes us, something that drives us to say this is what we want to do. I mean, just let me, how many of you have actually served in some kind of mission work in a country other than the United States? Would you please stand? Now look around. I mean, this is fabulous. We have veterans, we have young people. I mean, this is incredible. The opportunities before us are marvelous. So what is our challenge? The issues are complex. They always are. There are no clear answers. That's why we meet week after week. That's why we constantly worship and constantly read the Bible and pray and encourage one another. The answers are never clear. And yet we must think deeply 
And as a congregation, we must think deeply about our mission, both in Pasadena and throughout the world. There's much that we can do in so many ways. Rusty Edwards wrote a hymn, We All Are One in Mission. And I'd like to close with the first two stanzas of that hymn. We are all one in mission. We are all one in call. Our varied gifts united by Christ, the Lord of all. A single great commission compels us from above to plan and work together that all may know Christ's love. We are all called for service to witness in God's name. Our ministries are different. Our purpose the same. To touch the lives of others by God's surprising grace so every folk and nation may feel God's warm embrace. Amen.